You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. Every week, myself and my co-host, Dr. Scott Barber, bring you the information that you'll need so that you can advocate for the health and well-being of yourself and for your family. Uh, we talk about the issues that doctors are talking about in doctors' lounges all over the country, and we try to arm you with information so you'll be a good advocate for yourself and for your family. And we are brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. Our uh, website is at wwwd the number four pcfoundation.org d four pcfoundation.org please go to our website read about what we are doing which is quite a bit these days and give generously nothing is too small nothing is too big but we need your help so we can continue to do this show and do all the work that we're doing fighting for the doctor-patient relationship, and for your health care freedom. And nothing is more important right now than your health care freedom. And I'm sitting here in my scrubs in this new reality as we enter the third month of this COVID crisis in America. And the uh, routine that I have every day is a, uh, a very... A uh, different one than I have had for my whole career. I go to work now in scrubs I never did before. Um, I have a mask on on my face, uh, not right now, but now it's around my neck. I only wore a mask in the operating room previously, and um, and I'm uh, aware of what I'm doing all the time with my hands so that I don't inadvertently touch my face and I keep my areas clean. And this is um, what the left wants us to believe is the new normal, and I hate that term. I refuse to accept the new normal. This is not, in my opinion, it's my hope that this is not the new normal. I think that this is an adjustment that we all have to make. I come home from from uh, the hospital or from my office where I'm seeing patients. First thing that I do when I come home is I take off my scrubs and I go into the shower and clean myself off and try not to uh, uh, infect or contaminate uh, areas in my house where others might have... Uh, uh, the um, the misfortune of picking up something that I bring into the house. Uh, my son is in is has moved back home from New York. He escaped about seven weeks ago. Um, we uh, uh, wanted him to come home, and he had his epiphany one day in the elevator in uh, the beginning of March when there were 13 people in the elevator in New York and he realized what am I doing here because he wasn't working at his work anymore he was working remotely already and so there was just absolutely no point in him staying there this pandemic has altered 
everything that we're doing, and um, and I'm going to spend this entire show giving you my perspective on this. Um, not that you haven't heard enough about this already, but I'm concerned that we're hearing the wrong voices, and that's a real problem. Um, the uh, the last uh, few months, I had taken a hiatus from writing. Uh, I actually uh, that hiatus um, preceded the COVID pandemic. I just did not um, really have the the uh, impetus to uh, do a lot of writing, which I enjoy doing, but I had a lot going on in my practice. And then when the COVID epidemic hit, I had uh, more uh, distractions trying to get my medical practice on on track. And I'll talk about that in the, in the show. So I hadn't written in a while, but watching what's going on, listening to the things that I'm listening to um, on the radio and on on uh, TV and reading about in the paper, it really made uh, my blood boil and I had this pent-up uh, uh, energy that I couldn't contain anymore and I started writing again. And so this past week... Um, I had uh, several op-eds that appeared in uh, in fairly uh, well-distributed publications. I had one in The Federalist last week. Last week we had um, one in The Washington Times. And then um, another op-ed is likely going to be uh, um, uh, run also in the Federalist, they solicited it after my first op-ed, and I'm going to continue writing now until this is all over. And it's interesting because every day my routine is to uh, go outside and get my newspapers. Yes, I still get newspapers. I just love the feel of newspaper in my hand. And I open up my Wall Street Journal, and I go to, I start reading it in the back, in the opinion part of the Wall Street Journal. And I had really, uh, I, I had uh, been somewhat disappointed in November, December, January to see that healthcare, even though I live it every day and, and it had um, been a, huge issue uh, with regard to single-payer health care and uh, the the rift or the the uh, difference between what President Trump and and the and the conservatives were talking about versus what the um, the socialists were talking about which was single-payer health care um, there wasn't really a whole lot that was in the paper about healthcare, and and it disappointed me that people were so uh, tired of healthcare that they uh, the the op eds stopped appearing. Well, you know, this is an example of be careful what you wish for because you'll you you might be sorry when you get it. And what do I, I mean? What I mean by that is in the paper virtually 
a hundred percent, not quite a hundred percent, but certainly um, well over eighty percent of the articles in the paper have to do with COVID or with healthcare. Um, same is true on the news. It has sucked out all the oxygen for every other issue. There are other issues, of course. You know, you have the, the Biden sex scandal. You've uh, uh, got the issue with uh, with General Flynn and the declassification of, of uh, information. These are stories that would be on the front page of of the Wall Street Journal. They would they would uh, dominate the news cycle, but not at this particular time in our history. And um, and so, with that as a backdrop, I'd like to give you my perspective on this COVID crisis and and talk about uh, for a, a little bit. Um, the response and uh, what is, has been happening. And I'm going to be jumping between some of the articles that I have uh, written this past week. One of them, the one that was in The Federalist, was how corona shutdowns are killing America's health care system. Um, the one that was in uh, the, the uh, Washington Times was that... Um, th- had centered on our dependence on China for drugs and medical supplies. And then I wrote one that's going to hopefully get published in the next few days in The Federalist that um, what is happening right now with the suppression of independent thought in this country that differs from the group think that has has predominated and been perpetuated by the left that is dangerous for this country. So let me just start out by saying that this pandemic is is absolutely horrible and it's real and people are dying, they're getting sick and it is it is absolutely heartbreaking some of the stories that are coming out. People who have lost a number of individuals in their families. Um, Frontline workers, the the people in the hospitals who are being thrown into the fire by their hospitals that employ them without proper protection. Um, The the, uh, stories of, of couples that are separated because they can't cross the border. I saw a story about a couple who are um, meet every day at the Canadian border and uh, they just talk. They're married and, uh, and they can't cross the border because the border's been shut down because of COVID. So this is a, is a human tragedy of unimaginable proportions proportions. It has uh, never been seen in our lifetime, unless you were alive back in 1918, 1919. But this is something that has been, is unprecedented. And as a result, it required unprecedented uh, measures to try to respond to it. 
Now, I'm going to say what the um, media won't, and that is that President Trump, in my opinion, is doing a superb job. It is not the role of the president to um, prevent something like this. It is the role of the president to respond, and he has responded. And the left is trying to, once again, make a case why President Trump has done a bad job. In fact, they're trying to convene a commission to question the response to the COVID emergency. And I will say that nobody knows the answer, and nobody has gotten this right, not even the esteemed Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, at the beginning of all of this, if you'll recall, said that COVID was not really a problem for America. And then he, he went on to say that COVID was not going to be um, a, a problem that, that was uh, going to be a communicable disease between people. And then he said that um, you had to be sick in order to, um, to uh, infect someone else with COVID. Then the CDC made recommendations about not wearing masks. If you remember, there were TV spots that were run by Dr. Fauci, Dr. Deborah Burks, um, our um, uh, uh, sec- uh, the um, uh, Surgeon General of the U.S., imploring people not to wear masks. So... We do not hear anything about the the um, the missteps of these quote experts early on, but what we do hear is how President Trump has mishandled this situation because we didn't have enough PPE, we didn't have enough ventilators, they didn't do enough early on. Again. If you just think back a little bit and remember the reaction when President Trump stopped travel from China, he got assailed by the media. How could he do that? That was racist. That was a horrible thing to do. Then the same thing happened when he shut down travel from Europe. And now what we're hearing is that he didn't shut it down fast enough and they want to investigate him because of that. So what that brings me to is the media and the response. I am uh, a urologist. I am not a frontline worker. I am a backline worker. So what does that mean? It means that I still take care of patients. I still take care of patients who need my um, my expertise and my help on a daily basis. The problems that I have seen in my practice are are not necessarily life-threatening problems immediately like COVID might be. And incidentally, COVID is not life-threatening for over 80% of the people who get it. The people who have had problems 
tend to be, for the most part, people who are in nursing homes, people who are in um, immunocompromised conditions. Um, they're they're uh, they have cancer and they're on, on uh, drugs that reduce their immune response. They have other pre-existing conditions. We are hearing about how um, racist our response is to COVID. Why is that? Because the black community is affected disproportionately than the white community in many areas. Um, the, uh, um, the thing that we, we know is that in the black community, they have uh, problems that, that put them at, at uh, an increased risk for, for COVID. Those are pre-existing conditions or comorbidities. There's an increased incidence of diabetes and of high blood pressure in the black community. Obesity is another factor. And these, unfortunately, are things that we see um, in, in that community that put them at risk. So this is not racist. Again, anytime you hear these things, the, it's the media trying to gin up discord in in our in our society, and this this crisis that that we're that uh, we are witnessing um, is it has the response to it has been a a unbelievable um, effort on the part of the federal government and on the part of state governments trying to get a handle on it. The um, why is New York so bad? Why is why is the uh, the uh, the the uh, incidence of COVID so bad in New York and the death rate so high? New York has one of the most congested um, uh, metropolitan areas in the country with apartment building after apartment building after apartment building stacked on each other. It's almost like a 70-story cruise ship. And what we have seen on cruise ships where everybody is in close in close uh, quarters to each other is a high rate of infection. We saw that on cruise ships. We saw that on, on military ships. And this is a very contagious disease, highly communicable. We've heard the comparisons between the uh, uh, COVID, why are we making a big deal about this? What about flu deaths? We see, you know, uh, 65, 70,000 flu deaths a year. We're not shutting down society because of the flu. Well, this is probably more contagious than the flu, and it's most likely more deadly than the flu. Um, it is it is uh, an unknown virus. We've never seen this before, and we really don't know exactly how it's how it is going to affect different individuals. And it's not affecting everybody the same way. At first, we thought it was. At first, we thought 
that this was a respiratory problem. But what we're really discovering is that it's an immune problem. So, so people with decreased immunity are having different responses. Some of them are having vascular problems. We've heard about the dancer, the Broadway dancer, who had uh, uh, problems with um, clotting and, and he lost his leg and he's in bad shape in the ICU in New York. Um, in some people, it affects their their brain and in other people, it affects their GI tract. So this is a, a, um, a, a disease of of co- that is not completely known. In fact, it's it's hardly known, and it's going to be studied for years and years. So, the the um, response to this has been um, one in which we needed to learn about the virus. We needed to get on top of the virus and. And then we need to um, decide how we are going to respond as as time goes on. And um, what we're seeing right now, two months into this, entering our third month of COVID, is that the media narrative of this problem is such that it is whipping the public into a uh, state of perpetual fear. And it has um, altered our lives in ways that are difficult to to even even talk about. This is this is a two a two pronged problem. It is a health problem and everyone in America is now Concerned about whether or not um, they're going to get COVID and get sick, and 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 possibly die. That's what the the media is is uh, um, that's the message that the media is sending to people. But the other part of this is the response, the economic impact of how we respond to this disease. One of one prong is out of our control. The second prong is totally in our control and is and and the wounds that are inflicted on America are self-inflicted wounds. So what we're seeing right now is that we are dealing with an unprecedented health crisis and our reaction at first was based on the the um, models that came out of Washington State that predicted there would be over two and a half million deaths in this country. We now know that those models are grossly overstating the problem, and that's not going to be the case. Nonetheless, the response to those predictions is what drove all the reaction that that um, came subsequent to that. So that meant that with those dire predictions, we needed to come to a shutdown. Now, when that happens, there is um, it, it's going to have implications that we haven't even 
dreamt about. Um, we we um, know the people who have pushed for complete shutdown never ever dreamt that we would be dealing with a problem with our food supply. The farmers can't get their their um, produce to market. Meatpacking industries are shutting down. I don't think that they truly calculated what was going on, but they may have. And what do I mean by that? Well, I think that I'm not alone when I when I um, say that what's happening right now is media driven, and the um, longer this goes on, the better this is for the media. The media has a uh, has has dual interest. They need to boost their ratings. That's how they they stay in business. And previously, the legacy news outlets ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN. CNN would be out of business if it wasn't for the fact that they have a contract with airports. Um, and it's and it gets broadcast in every airport in America because nobody watches CNN up until now. Now people are watching CNN, MSNBC. MSNBC would have nothing to talk about if it wasn't for President Trump because they're irrelevant. So the the legacy media outlets stand to gain tremendously by a crisis of this magnitude because people are now glued to their TVs. They've become TV junkies. If they weren't before, then they certainly are now because they need to hear what's happening, what's happening locally, what's happening nationally, what to expect, what's going to happen to their paychecks, what's going to happen to their livelihood, um, what's going to happen to their 401ks. The media also stands to gain because they hate President Trump. And the worse America is, the more discord America has, the worse they believe President Trump will be perceived by America. And so to keep a shutdown going indefinitely... It benefits their their goals, which is to boost their ratings and to um, see to it that President Trump doesn't win a second term. Now there is um, the the uh, the media basically wins. There are three scenarios that that we can have from from this this. Um, uh, Response to COVID, we can either we can either um, uh, see the um, uh, we, we're going to we're going to either get out of this because of mitigation, and I'll get get to that after the break, which we're coming up to, or we can um, shut down the economy and and uh, see our 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 America pretty much um, uh, destroyed. Or we can see civil disobedience and discord and anarchy because people are not going to allow their civil liberties to be trampled on 
by capricious governors who um, decide on their own, not with the power of legislation, but through their office, what they believe they're allowed to do, just make sweeping um, policy um, uh, changes and keep people from working. They're letting criminals out of prison because they don't want them to get COVID. And yet they're arresting people who won't wear a mask or somebody who's opening up their shop. The more this goes on, the longer this goes on, the more people are going to rise up and there's going to be anarchy. And again, that is one of the goals of the left. So there are three scenarios and two of which uh, benefit the goals of the left. And we'll break right now. I'm going to go ahead and talk about some specific issues in what I've written about this past week when we get back in, into the uh, show after the break. So stay with us. I'm going to take one uh, second here to uh, remind everybody that we have Fox contributor Dr. Nicole Sapphire on this morning at 10 minutes after 10. She'll be calling in from New York, and uh, we look forward to having her on. Also remind everybody that uh, our agent in charge uh, has started the investigation, and we started talking about it yesterday all the mistakes, and he was in the FBI and ended his career in Homeland Security as a special agent. And he started talking about all the mistakes that uh, the FBI has made, political mistakes that should have, under the Hatch Act, should have never been made. And uh, that show is archived already. And one last question I'd like uh, for Dr. Uh, how to uh, consider or, or come back and maybe address is it's sort of an oxymoron calling Fosse an expert or anybody an expert because just like you being a fantastic urologist and surgeon it didn't just happen you went to school for a number of years and go back all the time to learn more and more and more you never stop learning Exactly where did uh, any of the experts go to uh, learn about a pandemic and what to do and what to do next? Uh, So I I figure the word expert attached to anybody regarding the pandemic is a little bit out of line, in my opinion. But that's, uh, that's just my opinion. We'll be back right after this. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're back in the doctor's lounge, and surprise, surprise, we're talking about COVID today. I'm your host, Dr. Hal, and we um, are going to talk about some of the articles that I've written, and I want to try to just tie this all together. Um, So I I want to start out by talking about um, the, uh, the problems with our PPE. You know, I am a surgeon. I, you, most of you who listen to this show regularly know that. And um, and so we uh, we will uh, we in the operating room we have experienced shortages in gowns, in um, our drapes, in uh, other supplies. We've um, uh, also uh, seen shortages in drugs. And um, if you do a... So so shortages are something that we see in America all the time. And it's it's so odd because we... we um, it's, it's not like there's a run on, on, uh, on gowns or, you know, it's, or a, ca- a tube, a catheter that we're using, where they say it's on back order. I don't, I, I never truly understood what that meant. And I wound up digging into this and doing a deep dive. And it turns out that the majority of the medical supplies in the world are made or have a part that is critically important that's made in China. And the same is true with drugs. This is even worse. The drugs in, in the world, 90% of the drugs in the world are touched by China. And there are reasons why this has happened. Um, most of the American companies have outsourced their manufacturing. They have plants in China. Those plants are actually co uh, owned by Chinese companies because you can't own a plant in China. If you're an American company, you can't put up a plant in China. What you can do is you can have a Chinese partner, a subsidiary, and they can manufacture your the critical uh, parts or the critical items that you need, and then they'll ship it back to the U.S., and they'll either come back fully uh, assembled or, and ready to go, or come back and then they'll get uh, the final touches here in the U.S. But this is a huge problem because China has a, a, str- a stranglehold on um, on the world supply of uh, of of medical supplies, and it, the one of the um, theories that is uh, being um, is being raised right now is that China knew about the pandemic, and this 
is a Chinese originated pandemic. And I don't want to be a, um, a conspiracist and say, well, this was a Chinese plot. I don't think it really likely was. I think it was an accident. I do have a question where it originated from, though, whether it came from the Chinese wet market, which is the the uh, prevailing um, narrative by the Chinese and the American left, or it actually originated in in one of two virology labs that are centered in Wuhan. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I can I can say for sure where it originated, but I have my suspicion that it came out of the lab, not out of a market. And it's not uncommon for there to be an accident. It happened in America some years back at the CDC here in Atlanta. Um, There was an accident where one of the viruses got out, but it was contained very quickly, and it was never a problem. Nobody even knows about that. But in China, I think... There, it's it's a completely different situation, and and they did not do a good job of getting on top of it, and um, and so the um, the the uh, virus um, w- was spread, and uh, by the time the Chinese recognized this, the uh, it was the the genie was out of the bottle. They locked down Wuhan. They stopped. Um, domestic travel on planes out of Wuhan. Um, They didn't stop international travel. And so one of the prevailing theories is that China knew that they had a major epidemic on their hands that was going to result in tremendous economic um, turmoil in their economy. And they um, did not want to weather this storm alone and they decided that they were going to bring the whole world down with them and so they uh, they allowed people to leave Wuhan internationally and they did about 5 million people left Wuhan and um, they uh, infected the rest of the world at the same time the Chinese were amassing PPE their own and others, and uh, this is a, a modus operandi of the communist Chinese uh, uh, government. If you remember back uh, a month ago or more, President Trump um, called in American companies and mobilized them, much like happened in World War II, to get them to start producing the the materials that we needed, ventilators, Masks, etc., and 3M was one of those companies, and they promised that they were going to uh, ramp up production and uh, produce millions of of uh, N95 masks, the only ones that have been shown to protect both the wearer and other people in the environment. Unfortunately, the plant where those N95 masks are made for 3M, resides in China. And the Chinese government, the communist Chinese government, nationalized virtually all those companies and prevented 
those masks from coming to the United States. So that's a huge problem, but it gets worse. It's worse with drugs. The um, 90% of the uh, global supply for active ingredients in the world's prescription drugs, over-the-counter medications, and vitamins were once produced in the U.S., Europe, or Japan. That's not the case anymore. Now it's in China. And so this has happened because of cheap labor, It's happened because China has been allowed to become part of the world economy um, through the World Trade Organization, which incidentally was a Bill Clinton um, uh, uh, project to get China accepted into that uh, that uh, into the world uh, uh, economy of the world's uh, uh, um, uh, trading partners. And uh, this is part of the effort for this one-world economy, this globalist view of, of uh, the world. Well, China, they're, they're brilliant um, uh, business people. What they did was they undercut all the other companies that were making drugs around the world, and the price kept going lower and lower until it was unsustainable and most companies got out of the drug manufacturing business and they wound up, uh, the Chinese wound up uh, cornering the market on drug production. They control the world's um, uh, supply of acetaminophen, that's Tylenol. It's in virtually every cold medication. They also control the world supply of aspirin. And the, the active ingredients in, in most prescription drugs that are commonly used, cancer drugs, antibiotics, antidepressants, oral contraceptives, blood pressure uh, medications, are produced in China. The active ingredients come from China. So the Chinese, the communist Chinese government could wage a war against our country simply by withholding all the active ingredients that we are dependent upon as a society for our medical well-being. And this is a, a problem that we've known about for a long time and we've allowed to continue. Um, there have been situations that we have known about where um, Chinese originate, drugs originating in China have caused tremendous problems. Uh, about about uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there was tainted heparin. Heparin is a, is a blood thinner that's absolutely critical in uh, heart surgery and in vascular surgery and um, in dialysis. And um, the, the, um, the production of heparin comes from animal products that came from um, unregulated Chinese um, uh, sources and um, and the heparin was was uh, was bad. It was tainted, and and people died. People got sick around the world. 
Um, another drug, uh, a, a blood pressure drug, um, Valsartan, is um, is made in uh, a generic form of it is made in China, and it has um, uh, it's been shown back as lo- as far back as 2012 to contain chemicals that are human carcinogen. And this has continued; it has not stopped since 2012. And the Chinese use um, uh, they they use. Uh, uh, um, Ingredients that are are cheaper to manufacture these drugs, which are not safe. They have unsanitary standards. There's no quality control, and certainly um, we we don't uh, have any access to the manufacturing process. And what's worse is that our government. Our governmental agencies, like the Food and Drug Administration, have allowed this to continue. Why? Because of the pharmacy lobby. Because the pharmacy companies, the big pharmaceutical companies, all are manufacturing in China. Because labor is cheaper, components are cheaper, and they are able to um, show um, increasing profits because of uh, their rel- our reliance on China to make their drugs and uh, and components that go into the drugs, and this is something that I think this COVID episode has exposed. It has um, we we now know that we cannot allow this to continue. We can put an end to it, and there are hopefully. Um, people on both sides of the aisle who recognize this. I know that some of the uh, uh, GOP senators and congressmen um, have recognized this and are trying to uh, introduce legislation to stop this from happening. And how do you do that? You um, bring manufacturing back to the U.S. I think people would be willing to pay a little bit more if that's a problem and we can't bring it back to the U.S., bring it to Mexico. You know, if we've got we've got a brand-new U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, and here we have an opportunity to sit down with Mexico and say, listen, we are going to build your economy. We're going to bring back every single um, uh, plant that are being outsourced to China to Mexico. We are no longer going to allow companies to have Chinese partners in to uh, to produce products or components. We're gonna we're gonna um, punish companies that that do that, and we are going to reward companies that bring that manufacturing back to North America and Mexico would benefit from it. It would help. We can extract concessions from Mexico if we do that. We can strengthen our border. People wouldn't even be wanting to cross the border if they were making a decent living because we were bringing all of this production to Mexico. So we have got to get rid of the Chinese chokehold on our uh, um, medical supply chain, and and, uh, this is an opportunity to do this. The um, the thing that people really don't understand is that 
what is happening right now is going to have long-term implications in the medical um, uh, food chain, if you will. Um, right now, we doctors are being hailed as heroes, and the ones who are on the front line certainly are, and they deserve our support and our admiration. The um, doctors who are being thrown into these um, dangerous settings in uh, in uh, hot spots like New York or Detroit or New Orleans are often uh, fighting the COVID battle w- un- unequipped with with uh, poor um, PPE and um, and this is something that is is horrible. Um, and again, this goes back to production of PPE and why we have to do that here. But this is going to have far-reaching effects on our healthcare system because now people are um, afraid to come back to the doctor. They're staying home with medical problems. They are not getting taken care of, and um, they're going to be sicker when they come in. And they are, um, in many cases, going to have problems that are beyond the uh, point of no return. To top that off, there are going to be less doctors available to uh, take care of these people who are in uh, who are going to be in need of uh, of of care. This is not simply just switching the uh, the switch off and then switching it back on again. The, um, the the medical practices that um, are right now uh, hurting are the ones that are teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, the ones who have been fighting to stay open because reimbursement has been poor, um, because of the overhead going up, no protection against malpractice, which is another issue entirely. Um, what's going to happen is that at the end of all of this, those practices are not going to be able to remain in business, and they're going to need to uh, either close their doors or sell to hospitals at fire sale rates, hospitals which are getting bigger and and uh, and weightier, and hospitals, by the way, which in large part are part of the reason why we are facing the the crisis that we're facing. Hospital consolidation has led to less resources in the communities, not more resources. So when you hear um, Governor Cuomo in New York talk about the uh, shortage of ventilators in his community in New York City, it's not because President Trump did a bad job. It's because we've allowed hospitals to consolidate and to um, get smaller to conserve resources and, um, and maximize profits to themselves rather than to have an abundance of resources, a redundancy in the system, which would be possible were it not for restrictive laws that keep competition from occurring. So hospitals getting bigger 
by purchasing physician practices is only going to make the system worse and more vulnerable for the next crisis that we see. So what we need to see happen are a series of steps to try to protect healthcare going forward. The first is that what we need to do is we need to prevent um, the um, predatory bottom-feeding, blood-sucking lawyers who are lining up right now with nothing to do because the courts are not um, in session, lining up plaintiffs, lining up potential clients who are going to sue somebody over what's happening with COVID. And Unfortunately, many of the ones that are going to get sued are going to be doctors, either because they did something differently in this crisis to adapt to what's going on, or they failed to do something. And the doctors need to be indemnified against any of these ambulance chasers if we're going to have a medical system that's going to survive this pandemic. Second, the federal government needs to make available to physicians that are in risk of closing their doors tax-free loans, um, interest-free, tax-free loans that would um, allow them to stay open and prevent them from having to sell their practices to hospitals. Third, the government should seize this once-in-a-century opportunity to get rid of the bureaucracy and red tape that has handcuffed the medical profession for the last three decades or more. We are now seeing telemedicine um, emerge as a possible um, option for people to get care. And everybody is talking about it on TV. Oh, you can go see your doctor with telemedicine. Well, that's actually a lot harder to do than simply willing it to happen. And it's not amenable to many um, uh, uh, patients uh, who need to see a doctor. Um, For some, it does uh, make a lot of sense, and it is very helpful, and it will emerge from this as uh, another tool to help take care of patients. But it's never going to be um, uh, utilized if Doctors won't get paid for seeing patients on telemedicine the same as they will by seeing them in their office. Right now, that's happening because the president has strong-armed insurance companies to see to it that they do get paid. We don't want to see that disappear when this pandemic is over, and uh, that needs to be memorialized, and we can introduce telemedicine as an important adjunct to our uh, medical toolbox, which will be especially helpful for rural health care where doctor uh, availability is um, really uh, a challenge. Um, And lastly, I think that we need to level the playing field and give doctors the same opportunity to innovate as, uh, as hospitals and businesses have. And if we can do that, then we will come out of this pandemic stronger and better than we were before 
um, with a healthcare system that will be able to uh, stand on its own feet and uh, withstand the next um, uh, pandemic or insult to the medical system. Uh, David Moxley, our producer, asked a question at the end of the last session about about uh, Dr. Fauci, and I, I want to um, just comment on that on the last uh, minute that we have on the show. Dr. Fauci is an expert. I, I have to disagree with him. Um, he is he is probably one of the most brilliant virologists in in on, in the world, and uh, he has studied viruses. Um, uh, more than any uh, living individual. Um, he has uh, uh, been an expert in Ebola and in AIDS and in other SARS viruses. But this is a virus like none other. And, um, and although he has studied viruses and although he is an expert on viruses, it's not the... Um, the, what what makes him an expert is what he knows about viruses. What he doesn't know is how we should respond to this pandemic or to the virus um, that that uh, we're seeing because it's a novel virus. It means a new virus, and what that means is that we have no immunity to it. And so he is opining um, like um, doctors do about what he thinks, in his opinion, is the best way to manage this, which is to starve the virus. And we'll talk about that on the next show, about what the um, right response might be to uh, uh, taking care of, of a pandemic uh, because I'm sure we're going to still be talking about this when I come back in two weeks um, on the Doctor's Lounge on my next show. So thank you for being with us, and uh, and come back next week to listen to my co-host, Dr. Scott, who will have uh, more information and more opinions about uh, COVID-19 and uh, how we're handling this. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.